we expect perfection of a machine, if that's fair to say. That's a part of our, of our future. Allow them to focus on the context of the battle. Machine learning to train the image detection algorithms. Designed by people to help people. There's just endless opportunities for us to add value. Exploring and harnessing emerging technology for the land force is a story of successful failure and immense triumph. Over this series, I'll be speaking to the movers and shakers who are leading into the future with innovative approaches and groundbreaking technologies. We'll explore diverse topics like how artificial intelligence can support and protect the lives of our soldiers, or how vehicles and platform electrification can provide an edge. In this episode, I'll be speaking with director of PhantomWorks Global Boeing, Emily Hughes, who leads a dedicated team specialising in mission systems, advanced simulation, modelling and analytics. We're also joined by Army's lead of artificial intelligence, Lieutenant Colonel Adam Hepworth. Adam's portfolio includes human cognitive augmentation, autonomous systems, AI-enabled decision-making and human-machine teaming and swarming. During our conversation, we explore how AI is redefining the role of soldiers in combat and a few current AI use cases, and we look to the future, imagining the art of the possible. Well, Adam and Emily, welcome, and thanks for joining me. Thanks very much for having us, Cam. It's great to be here today. So, Adam, I'm going to start with you. When speaking to a broader audience, how do you best explain AI? I think AI, machine learning, and a whole range of technologies that sit under the same space can be really opaque to a lot of people. And so one really easy way of thinking about them is we're trying to somewhat replicate the functions of humans or animals and bring them into realisation or a way that people can use them in their everyday life through technology. And do you have different levels of the way that you explain AI to different audiences? If you're talking to a group of school kids or... Uh, very senior leaders, and I'm not comparing those two together, um, <laughs> certainly, but people that may not have a technical understanding, I think using stories or some type of narrative of something they're familiar with really helps. Uh, and if you're talking to a bunch of academics or uh, professional uh, engineers, then that changes how you uh, do that as well. Sure. And Emily, how do you best like to talk about it and just describe it to a broader audience? Yeah, sure. Well, so for me, often AI and autonomy as terms get conflated. Um, uh, for me, autonomy is the more overarching term and a subset of that, the AI piece. Um, it's around uh, machines being able to act independently of human supervision. Um, a lot of people's minds go to the place of out of control, crazy robots. There's a lot more structure and control to it in reality. And I think a lot of it, a lot of it is about getting people over this anxiety of are they going to do things um, in a way that's unpredictable. Yeah, or take people's jobs. I mean, that's something that you hear all the time, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think for this, there's a lot of areas where you would want it to take people's jobs. You know, they're, they're um, described often as dull, dirty and dangerous. So... Why would, you, why would you want to do that yourself when you've got a machine that can do that for you? I completely agree with you there, Emily. And one of the things that we've tried to work on and certainly the projects that we work with, with Emily and her team on is around taking people from those really transactional tasks to more meaningful or analytical work. Uh, and we'll probably get into that later, but, you know, taking someone from flying an aircraft around or flying a, an uncrewed system or driving a, a vehicle to being the person who monitors the system. So taking a more holistic perspective on how to operate that. Yeah. And so we hear words like AI ethics, cognitive computing, hyperparameter, instructed data, the list just goes on and on and on. Which part, Adam, of AI is Army interested in? Army's really looking to explore a whole range of different uh, areas of AI. You know, trust and reliability, which are really featuring heavily in the news at the moment, are really important to consider um, particularly when we think about Article 36 or the laws of armed conflict for uh, the use, use of weapon systems. So how we can ensure that an AI is you know, measured and considered and it's improved and used in a deliberate way so it doesn't do, as Emily said before, you know, the Terminator that's running around and I think that's sort of pervasive throughout media. Mm. Um, all the way from those more uh, philosophical questions right through to 
design questions around how we implement certain technical solutions to meet an outcome. If you're, if you're dealing with a supercomputer or a cloud infrastructure that sort of supports the whole defence ecosystem, you're making very different design choices to uh, if you're having uh, an AI fly an autonomous system thousands of kilometres away. And so I think it's really important to have a broad understanding of the whole ecosystem so you can know when and when not to use particular models and yeah. systems. And so, Emily, which part of AI is industry interested in? Well, uh, we are ultimately about providing solutions to problems, um, help protect the warfighter and deliver operationally relevant capability. So uh, the way um, our approach to developing technology we're always looking at the capability problem. So we do, we conduct operational analysis upfront where we see a vulnerability or a capability gap. We then think through what solution could we provide. Um, and so really to be developing those solutions to try and fill those gaps is a little bit of crystal ball gazing that goes into that. Um, and we really value cl the collaborative relationships that we have. Um, you know, the partnership we have with RICO is really fantastic to allow us to do a lot of that experimentation. These things, well, I was going to say these things don't work the way you expect. We, do, we don't even know what to expect often with some of these technologies. Yeah, and we often hear the term successful failure as well, don't we, especially in and around what RICO is doing So, and, and, and the learnings that you can take from successful failure. One that's really present in the media at the moment uh, for, for RICO and on our profile across socials is the robot dog. Uh, and that's really great for recruiting. And a lot of people can relate to that because it somewhat um, looks like a real dog and it acts in that similar way of, uh, of its locomotion. In a military utility setting, it's a very hard use case from our perspective of how that would look and, and where it may actually fit in. So understanding that the investment doesn't always turn into a technology and it may turn into knowledge is a really important part of the whole process from our perspective. Yeah, and I would imagine that the robot dog failed many times before you got it to where you can take it out into the public and show it and be, be you know, confident that something won't go wrong. Yeah, absolutely. And having, you know, trust in our operators that are using that system around members of the public during those type of events is of the utmost importance. And I think that gets us towards more closer teaming with systems, which is one of the three focal areas that we're really looking at the intelligent machine or which Emily touched on before, the autonomy and the AI that's actually on the platform, um, having multiple machines work together, which is the machine machine teaming and the final one, human machine teaming, developing that codependence so we can generate more together than we would be otherwise alone. I would call it all learning. It's expected learning or unexpected learning. I wouldn't talk about failure. Yeah, okay. So, Emily, I'm stay with you, and this question will be coming to you, Adam, as well. Do you remember your first AI encounter? What was your earliest memories of looking at it going, whoa, that's something that I might be interested in or something that could be amazing to, to use in the future? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm not sure I've ever reflected on it in that way. And, and, and my, I feel it's more, more autonomy is my space than AI. Again, it feels like a subset. So we develop um, autonomous behaviours in a very st structured and systematic way. You know, it's very controlled and measured. Um, I've worked in the autonomy space for... Um, at least 10 years now. Um, my my career, I've, I've grown up, I'm an aerospace engineer by background, and I've had the privilege of working across the life cycle, but I'm definitely um, happiest in this concept creation exploration space. Um, I love the idea of technology reducing the, the burden on humans, um, and I think it's just going to be an inevitable part of our of our future. So I like the uncertainty and the newness. I think some people find the this um, ambiguous space uh, paralyzing, but I, um, I I I like the creativity associated yeah. with it. It's it's really interesting, and I, I you know reflecting while you're talking there, Emily. I also am like, wow, that's hard. It's when do you know, or when do you first experience that sort of thing? And I think. For me, it was almost the, the theoretical side of sort of some of the control theory and the classic optimization mathematics and, and in a different field called different things, but some of the underpinning uh, implemented technologies that sit there. And then as you get exposure and build them and, you know, you're writing the scripts or something, you're, all of a sudden things are happening with the, the unexpected or the expected outcomes, as, as Emily so well put. 
um, and you're like, oh, wow, this is sort of a, a genesis moment. Could I put a date or time on it? Absolutely not. I think it's something that just sort of overcomes you of, of interest. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Can you give me an example of how AI <coughs> is being used in Army now? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll give two different examples of, uh, of, uh, of what we're doing at the moment. So one is uh, putting AI on radios and what we're doing that for is to take people away from having to scribe all of the notes of the radio communications that sit between all of the different combat units uh, out in the land force. Uh, and so that could be for a soldier on the radio uh, doing shifts all day long, and that's a very intensive process. It's, it's not as simple as listening to a podcast or watching a YouTube video. They need to be aware and have understanding of what's occurring in the battle space to let the commander know uh, when they need to act or what, they, what information is really important. To, uh, to deal with at that point in time. Sure. And so by having an AI do some of that pre-processing and transcription task and flagging keywords, you've taken that person away from doing the transcription and the cognitive work of thinking and allowed them to focus on the context of the battle and the situation, which really reduces their burden across the, this current state and allows them to make better informed decisions to help that commander. Yep. On the other end, working with Emily's team at the moment, uh, we're working on the autonomous systems and how they fly by themselves, determine their own search areas and team together. And Emily, maybe I'll let you jump in and answer that one as well. Yeah, for sure. No worries, Adam. Well, there's uh, two threads to the work that we've been doing with Rico. Um, the one which Adam's um, started off talking around is autonomous teaming behaviours. Um, the idea being that you task a team of autonomous platforms and they will go off and prosecute that task between themselves. They might carry a different combination of sensors across the team and based on, um, on their um, interactions, they will then uh, reprioritize or retask amongst themselves. Um, the other uh, really critical element to the work that we're doing um, is using machine learning to train um, image detection algorithms. And we're doing some pretty neat work um, in the synthetic environment as well. So really leveraging um, the, the gaming uh, world, you know, high resolution images that exist there. Um, and th this is an area which we'll be able, we hope when we see this um, introduced uh, into a, an operational scenario, massively reduce the human load in a couple of couple of critical areas. Yeah, so you've been able to take ideas from outside of defence and outside of army and bring them in as an application. We're quite a small team in Phantom Works. I'm a strong believer um, you can't innovate without diverse perspectives. So um, we have a small group with lots of different backgrounds um, and it's a, a program that's really come to fruition and been successful with a real mix of skills um, across um, modeling and simulation analysis, um, machine learning specialists, um, and then some really smart people that can work algorithms in the behavior space. Yeah, and so in at Rico, we've talked about this before as well. It's a real eclectic mix of these amazing minds all coming in to work on these different problems. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think the, the partnership part here is, you know, we're looking at the operational context within Army of how we can use a new technology to do something in a different way or to change the risk, as Emily put it, the dull, dirty or dangerous tasks and remove soldiers from those. And partnering with Phantom Works and our other industry and academic partners is so essential to actually realise that vision. Um, and as we work on both the technology and the concepts and we co-develop those together to actually get to the end state that we're all looking for. So Adam is the lead of the artificial intelligence at Army HQ. How might Army gain the advantage through AI? And I'm sure there's a number of different ways. What's the number one way to start off with? Uh, I don't know if there's a number one way. There's a few different avenues that we can we can explore. And one of them that I think the offers the greatest uh, opportunity at the moment that we're looking at is around uh, teaming behaviors uh, or teaming in general. And so at the moment, we often have a human do a task or multiple humans working on one particular task at a time. And that's very labor intensive. And it means that we can't always uh, achieve all that we need to uh, when, the, when the moment is right to, to do some particular operational task or we need to reapportion people. We lose part of that uh, capability. Through the use of AI and autonomy, what that gives us the ability to do is to take those people out of the system 
And we're not replacing those people with AI. What we're doing is the person that's left monitoring the system is now working with that. And those soldiers can go off and do other tasks. So instead of having uh, one person fly one aircraft, we have one person fly a team of aircraft because they're monitoring that system as we spoke about briefly earlier. That now means we can have multiple aircraft groups being flown at once, which means we can do a, a lot more search or a lot more of other tasks out in the battle space. And so it must be really interesting for you, Emily, to hear that with your aeronautical and space background and the amount of opportunity there. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that we really value um, being part of a program with RICO is that we get so much um, real-time feedback on the operational relevance of the work that we're doing. So we have folks in our analysis community who have ex-defense backgrounds, um, but an awful lot changes in terms of the, um, the operational scenario, the threat context. Um, so it's incredibly validating for us. Um, and, you know, we get a lot of ideas from the RICO team around potential different applications for our technology that we haven't thought of before. Yeah, so it's almost like an exploration journey, isn't it? And it's, it started as really just probably conversations, I would imagine, but has just expanded, expanded. So just give, give us a little bit about that and how that played out right from the initial conversations. In terms of the, the program yeah. that we are doing together today. Yeah. Um, well, so, so we had um, actually a lot of this work, its genesis was in the commercial space. So we were using... Um, machine vision um, and uh, autonomous behaviors to help um, with pipeline monitoring um, in oil and gas. Um, and I think some of the RICO folks was there was a, a defense uh, symposium that we were attending, saw a brief and came over and had a chat about, hey, we've got some ideas about some other applications. Um, we started off with, um, you know, something tangible that we could experiment with in the near term. And the, the program of work's just grown from there. We do a lot in the simulation world first um, before, and then we plug hardware in the loop before we take things out into the real world to test. So we can actually cover an awful lot of ground, explore an awful lot of things that would take a lot more time and require a lot more invest, investment if you're going out flying. So it's been really fantastic to be able to, be able to do that together with the RICO team. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, the journey we've been on over that time since I think it was in Townsville, that first sort of discussion around what the art of the possible could be, we've gone from a broad idea of use cases uh, that may apply the technology and really focus the application towards specific use cases um, which is where we're heading to now. And I think that's really important in the defence context because it's easy to really open the aperture and try to solve every problem at once and uh, risk almost solving nothing. And this way we can really learn well about what works, what doesn't, and progress those forward to, to realise capability into the future. And it's really important for Army to reach out to defence industry as well and tell them what the problems are so they can go away and build the products and services. I know at the recent Army Robotics Expo, we were out speaking to a number of defence industry SMEs who reached out to Rico through LinkedIn. And so the conversation started there and now they're building products that are helping the Army. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, we're in a very fortunate position that we have a broad media profile, whether that is on you know, platforms like LinkedIn or through the symposium series uh, at the ARX uh, or even visiting industry and academia uh, out and about in Australia. Uh, we try to keep a really broad understanding of where technology trends are heading uh, and where we can leverage those uh, either dual use and something that's in the commercial space that can come in and fill a specific need or take a punt on a small company that may be one or two people that have a really great idea that we're willing to invest in as well. And I think the opportunity to be able to, to, be able to work like that with a range of partners is really fantastic. It's also got defence industry collaborating, chatting amongst each other and in the AI space especially, um, bringing in products and ideas and showcasing them to Rico, which is exciting for people like you. Very much so. So this is our third ARX. It's been fantastic to be on the journey with Rico um, from the start. Um, and we've got some really good examples, our machine learning, machine vision um, capability um, one of the steers we had from Rico is, oh, it'd be great if this was on ATAC. So this was something which is widely used um, amongst the defence community. 
we didn't have visibility of. So we've built this as a plugin, which has been a real draw for collaboration activities with the US, with the UK. So this has kind of got traction now as an AUKUS activity just through that, hey, wouldn't it be great if you could plug in? Um, which was was a steer we would we would never have had um, without this relationship. And I think partnering to take the technology to the event that Emily was talking about in the UK earlier this year with US and UK partners and sort of demonstrating the tip-in value of Australian intellect capability and capacity of what we can do in the country is really good uh, and, it, and it gives to that whole community um, a, a real novel avenue to consider and certainly some of the technology Emily's teams developed uh, the synthetic data training pipelines uh, is really quite novel and, and world-leading. Ethical, legal and regulatory structures are paramount in the application of artificial intelligence, especially in the land domain. Adam, how do these structures influence and shape the military adoption of AI? I think it's a really challenging time at the moment uh, for military AI. There's a number of uh, you know actors around the world that are looking to do or, or are using uh, technologies in different ways. Um, and I think we see it in, in Europe quite frequently and, and other areas as well. Um, we're trying to have quite a considered and deliberate approach about how we use AI. Um, people talk about having humans off the loop and you know the, the Terminator idea. And I, I think that's something we're not comfortable with going down that pathway because of the values that we hold within, within Army. And really what we're looking to have is to taking the soldiers out of risk, but maintaining the custodianship and the decision responsibility for how all of our systems are used. And this is no different for any technology that we have on the battle space. And we just need to learn how, as an organisation, we best leverage AI autonomy and machine learning technologies writ large uh, to include them in that space. So, Emily, how can Army build an environment where AI is adopted in collaboration with the industry while protecting the security of the Defence Force? Well, I think um, communicating what the capability need is in such a way that allows industry the freedom to be creative, come up with innovative solutions that Army can pull through is, is critical. Um, the traditional defence approach to thinking that they need to have the answer, specifying requirements to the nth degree, putting those out through competition, having industry... Stop rolling your eyes. <laughs> I mean, this is a really difficult space. You can't possibly know what you're looking for. So I think just to say, you know, you, you, you know how to solve problems, come up with solutions, tell us what your problem is and allow us to help, I think is is the best way to sum up. And, and to jump on that, you know, the way I think we develop both of our, uh, you know, phases of work with the current uh, work package we've got with Emily and the team follows that exact approach. You know, it's co-developing that uh, and partnering to, to get to the statement of work that we actually need so we can meet contract the contractual requirements. But really it's having a shared understanding of what the vision is and where we want to go together as a, as a big team. Yeah. And to have the flexibility along the way Absolutely. to change the direction. If you'd asked me three years ago when we embarked on the journey, I guess the same for you, where we would be now, I, I have, have no idea. Where will this be three years from now? Uh, it, I'm sure we'll be in an unexpected place by then too, but we'll, we can feel completely confident that we'll end up delivering value along the way yeah. because we keep, keep connected and we can re-vector. Absolutely. It must be an interesting experience for you as well, Adam, being in Army for quite some time and watching over the years, it takes a long time to move it in a different direction. But with what we're talking about now, you have to almost move in a different direction every day. So that must be a really interesting experience for you. Uh, I find it fantastic. And I think, you know, you made the point before about the Rico team being quite eclectic. I think everyone enjoys that change and living in a world of uncertainty somewhat. Uh, and not knowing exactly where the answer is, but knowing that we'll find it. Uh, and I think that's the, that's the fun part, um, exposing these technologies to our senior leadership across the whole of defence um, is, is how we get the buy-in to make sure that we can keep pursuing these really important uh, 
outcomes for the organisation. It must be a scary prospect, though, for some of the senior leadership because they have been in it for a long, long time as well, and this is the way we've done it. And so all of a sudden we've got this small part of Army who just wants to take it over there and then take it over there. It must be difficult for some of those members. Potentially. Often what I hear, though, is it's flipped the other way, is that it's aspirational. <laughs> and they're like, wow, I wish I was a platoon commander or a company commander or a CO today that in the future we'll be able to use these technologies uh, when they're coming through. And, and I feel like there's almost, you know, through gritted teeth that they're like, ah, oh, this is great. Can I have some today? Yeah. So, um, yeah. Is that what you see from the outside looking in? My key observation is there's a perception that this technology is further into the future than it could be in reality. Um, so that's one of the things that really excites me um, is it's actually far more usable in the near term. Um, the barriers often are not the technology themselves. It's the perception of how these things can be used, um, some of the regulatory space. So I think what we're doing just in demonstrating and proving brings a lot of this to life for people. We've touched on it briefly. I want to dig down a little deeper now, uh, the role of humans in AI and in defence as well. And many conversations on artificial intelligence often lead to that same question, what is the role of humans? What are your thoughts on this overall, the bigger picture of that? Well, there's some roles, decision-making roles, that humans will always need to take. Um, just to build on Adam's point previously about the legal and ethical piece, um, we will always design our systems um, in a very structured and modular way where you can insert human control or observation points in lots of places. And then I think the, the intent being gradually over time you can you can remove those. So it's really versatile. That I think the system will always be able to do more than we as humans are comfortable letting it do. But that's then. And I think it's also very situationally variable as well. So the things you would allow an autonomous system to do in the middle of a busy city versus out in the middle of the desert for sure is going to be totally different. So I think it's on us from an industry perspective to have things architected in a clear and structured way so that you can put those control points in or out as you need to. Do you understand the fear though? Uh... I, I, I can see where it's coming from. Particularly if you don't live in this space, I, I can see it would be, it would be quite, quite anxiety-inducing. I, I think it's, it's an interesting one if you kind of pull on it with people and get to what, what, where that anxiety really comes from. In a similar way, we have a lot of conversations about, um, you know, what you can, what a, the reliability of a machine to detect something versus the human. The reality is there's a lot more error in humans than there is in a machine. It's just we struggle to wrap our minds around that. Sure. We expect perfection, I think, of a machine, if that's fair to say. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And so, Adam, for you, what does this mean in the military context? I think for us, it means that we'll always have, as I said, the custodianship of the authorities and the permissions to implement technologies. Um, we'll be happy to have AI do these narrow tasks uh, at some level. And, and as Emily said, you know, doing a particular function or automating uh, things that are hard for humans to do. But the human needs to maintain that command authority of how everything's playing together. Uh, and plugs into the total system. Hmm. Emily, you've worked across, as we said, um, multiple militaries internationally for over 20 years. From your experience, how has artificial intelligence changed militaries around the world? I think we're really at the beginning of that journey. I would say, ask me that question in 10 years' time. Uh, I, th I think the systems are still getting their minds around the art of the possible. So I think I don't I wouldn't say the change has happened yet. Okay. And do do you think there's people looking too far forward too quickly? I think sometimes in terms of the um shaping what might be possible, there's a there seems to be a lot of focus on what a whole platform or a whole system might look like. I think one of the things that's really valuable in the approach that Rico is taking is it's biting off um, tangible, meaningful chunks of capability and demonstrating what that application might give you rather than I need a whole big robotic shark, for example. You're going to take five years to design something which is inevitably not going to meet 
the thing that you didn't really know you wanted to do in the first place. So I think that's the trick for me, is what are the tangible threads that you can demonstrate? Absolutely. I couldn't agree more with Emily. You know, classic acquisition processes from the military have been very definitive uh, and rigid in their process and application. And I think the type of um, quasi-agile approach that we're taking where we, we have an idea but we're happy to explore and move as we need to and we have the freedom and the comfort to do that is the way we'll need to implement these technologies. So I think part of the fundamental change for the military will not only be in the technology space, it'll be in the organisational space of how we structure to support the technology uh, from a people side, but also the processes that we need internally, you know, for contracting and acquisition that enable us to actually leverage the technology. I think it helps build the value proposition as well in the business case. If you talk about a system or multiple systems, you're going to end up potentially with a large dollar value associated with it, which people will balk at, versus demonstrating the value proposition What does it save you? What extra capability does it give you? Rather than focusing on, well, I'm never going to be able to have that because it's going to cost too much money. Well, I actually can't afford not to have it because without it, I'm going to be vulnerable. Yeah, and how safer it can also make you in a war fighting situation. Yeah, absolutely. And it is is difficult to measure, uh, you know, in in a different industry, say finance or something, where you can measure in dollar value if something's very effective and get a precise you know, return on investment, it is a bit harder in the military setting because it, it, it's a type of insurance policy really at the end of the day. And so understanding the value of that investment may not always be very apparent at the time and may become as part of a whole of government deterrence effect or something that's quite far down the line. Mm. So it it's, could be challenging. And so following on for that, what are some of the ways that the Army is trialling and testing AI and thinking about it in a practical sense and how it might change some of the future concepts? So I think one of the ways we're doing it is getting it into the hands of users, uh, whether that be on trials or having users participate with our, uh, with our demonstrations with industry. And we were only up a few months ago in Townsville just before the Talisman Sabre series uh, working with... Uh, one of the units of three brigade uh, as part of the uh, the experimentation up there, uh, and so that's a really important part, and that that enacts the cultural change that we need within army to accept the new technologies. And what we've found is there's not sort of a, a standoff against what we're doing. There's actually people going, oh, "I want this today," or "I want to be able to do that now," uh, and it, it, it's good motivation to push faster and, and to get things done. Yeah, I'd love to you to expand on some of those interactions that you have live on the ground a, a little bit more. What are the conversations that you're having with the soldiers on the ground? Yeah, so a lot of the soldiers are really interested to understand how the technology is using or how it's being used and how they can use it themselves. Uh, so for this particular uh, demonstration, the soldiers are actually parking their vehicles out and around and we were using the um, autonomous systems from Emily's team to go out and detect and then classify those objects. Once we'd achieved that goal, uh, we had a couple of days spare at the end. So we then started looking at covering the objects in different environments and seeing if we could detect. So not only train for the, uh, or understand better for the AI, but allow the soldiers to see some of the implications of how you could get around that. So it's quite interesting, Emily. I don't know if you could add to that as well. Well, I think we can do so much in the sim and then we learn um, somewhat differently uh, when we take things out into the field. Uh, And I think for our team of engineers who are um, used to working in a lab environment, it's great to be able to get out and have some of those, those live interactions as well. For a recent one we did just slightly before that in June, uh, we had a large demonstration down in Pakapanyu where we had a swarm of drones, a number of the optionally crewed combat vehicles uh, and uh, other technologies uh, in a combined arms team in a very traditional military setting. And so what we did is we had actually soldiers from Perth, from uh, 10 Light Horse and from Melbourne uh, with 419 uh, Prince of Wales uh, Regiment and they were trained and using the technology within three days and doing things that would take soldiers in a very classic setting months or weeks to learn how to do. Uh, And it was really compelling to see how we can train people in a different way and give them the ability to make meaningful contributions on the battlefield without needing this large training burden as well. Yeah. And so what sort of feedback did they provide you on the ground? 
I think it comes in two, two sets. So one was very much about their interaction with the technology and we certainly don't get that in the Rico team as much as we probably would like to uh, because we're not the end user at the, the end of the day. And so things like the screen needs to be bigger or it needs to be a high resolution because I can't do A or B, that's really tangible outcomes. It helps us to set requirements for future acquisitions. The other part of it is then around the doctrine and the tactics and the techniques and the procedures of how they're using it on the ground. We have this sort of vision or idea of what we think it's going to be used like, and then we see the soldiers actually use it in very different ways uh, to deliver a, a new effect or deliver that effect in a different way. And I think that helps the organisation understand how we can leverage the technology moving forward. Emily, those sorts of exercises must be invaluable as far as feedback is concerned for you as well. Very much so. The exercises um, and then in a different way, um, events like the symposium where the technology gets exposed to a broader spectrum of army. So what we get in the live trial activities is a specific application associated um, with what we've developed that trial for. Um, what we get in this symposium setting is then folks coming over from a different space saying, hey, you could use it here and we could do something. So we, we end up finding um, an experiment that started out in a fairly contained area can take us off down a path where um, this technology could be used for a whole load of things that we hadn't even thought of. When talking about robotics and autonomous systems or RAS, Counter RAS is now part of the lead conversation or CRAS. How do you, Adam, best describe CRAS? So counter RAS is a really important aspect of our exploration at the moment. Um, as we're learning and understanding how we can use RAS AI technologies more broadly, we need to also understand how they can be used against us. And so counter RAS is really exploring the space of if someone's using this against us and we're on the other end of the demonstrations and the activities we're doing, what, what would we do to counter that? And that could be all the way from uh, a UAS coming towards us and shooting a net over it or having an electronic warfare effect, uh, say, of some of the exhibitors we see at the uh, Army Innovation Day for 2023, all the way through to changing what the AI sees on the ground. And so that could be putting pictures in, uh, along the side of the vehicle, for instance, that make it no longer look like a tank. Uh, whether that be an actual physical picture or a projector that's constantly changing them so it sees a sheep or a tank or a rifle or a microphone or something completely different. So there's a number of ways we can think about that, but it's really important to have both sides to understand the full system. There. And so that's exactly where I was going with that. I wanted to move it over into the AI space. How are you managing the threat of adversaries that can come in and disrupt our AI technology? I think at the moment we're very focused around understanding the opportunity um, around the AI at the moment. The, the challenge with understanding what an adversary can do is you don't always know exactly where they're at and there's this sort of game of cat and mouse uncertainty that exists between. So I think what we do is we learn what we're doing and how we implement that technology and then what can we do to mitigate that effect against us and think about what the alternative operational settings or other technologies to counteract that could be. And so, Emily, how is uh, defence industry tackling that challenge or are you having those conversations? What does that look and sound like? Well, I think for us, we're thinking about ways to enable Army to be agile, um, unpredictable somewhat in a good way. Um, and some of, we've been getting some really good learnings actually through you know, where we, how easy it is for us to train our AI um, gives defense some good insights into the flip side of that. So what makes it easy for us to train would also then be vulnerabilities for our defense force in terms of how easy the adversary would find training on our system. So I think we've got some really good tangible learnings that would apply there. Absolutely. And I think bouncing off Emily's point there, some of the technologies we've had throughout history have given us advantage of years or decades. And I think what, what the opportunity from AI is now that we may only have an advantage for a very short period of time. It could be hours, days or weeks. Uh, and so constantly being able to leverage the latest model or update or reparameterize or train on a new bit of technology um, gives us a slight edge. So I think we're going to see a lot more rapid development uh, of how we actually implement capability into the field. There's a bit of a game as well, isn't there, of how much we reveal 
what are we developing, some things we deliberately keep close hold. And we've talked a bit, Adam, about the value of training in a synthetic world because you're not out there exposing your tech, but there might be little nuggets that we would deliberately put out there um, to get the minds of the adversary thinking about how they might counter. Yeah, or then send them off in a completely different direction as well. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) I know we have touched on this uh, a couple of times through the conversation, but I want to expand on it a a little bit more now because I believe it's, it's a serious element of artificial intelligence. Emily, what do you say to people who express concerns about AI at two different levels? Number one, in the general community, because I'm sure out there you have those sorts of conversations and then within defence industry as well. Yeah, they're both great questions. Well, I would draw people's attention to how much they really are reliant on AI in their day-to-day lives that they wouldn't wouldn't quite expect. So, you know, even if you don't have the latest Tesla, there's an awful lot of... Um, autonomy in in our cars that we get into every day. We're using it every time we pick up our phone and search. You know, it's it's no surprise that uh, you go on social media and it will give you an advert for the latest thing you were searching um, on your desktop. Mm-hmm. So I think where there's an anxiety about, you know, I don't want AI in my life, well, congratulations, it's all over your day-to-day existence. Yeah. Uh, so I think to point out some of the luxuries that you wouldn't have if you were to suddenly... Um, be, com- be completely um, abstain from all AI, I think people would um, really feel like they'd gone back to the dark ages. Yeah. Um, so I think that that's always, I think, useful to point out. Um, and then, you know, into, into defense industry, well, I think it's, it's, um, it's I, I, I tell a story my, about my dad and a CD player. So he said, oh, that's just going to be a passing fad. We're not having one of those. I think this is another one of those where it's like you've kind of got to get on board with it. Otherwise, you're just going to become um, somewhat irrelevant yeah. and um, outdated. And did he buy that CD player? Eventually, or? he did, yes. <laughs> he still likes his records, yeah. though, to this day. Yeah, yeah. So, Adam, over to you. Same question, number one in the general community and then within Army itself. So I think... Um, General community, I think, is very similar to uh, Emily's experience there, that it's everywhere. Um, I I think one thing people forget as well is that the data that's needed to train the models is quite substantial at times. And so whether that comes from your social media profile or it comes from how we detect and train, uh, you know, say an armoured vehicle in the the army world, um, all of that needs a lot of data uh, underpinning. So I'm not sure that anyone would be able to live without AI today uh, at all. Uh, and in fact, you know, I, I think we're pretty lucky to have it at this point in time. It's, uh, it certainly beats some of the, uh, the old ways of doing things. Yeah, and so within defence then? And within defence, I think, you know, there's some really serious debates around uh, lethal autonomous weapons. And I know there's a, a broad range of views on whether you, they should be developed or not. Uh, and I think the discussion we had earlier around how we're thinking about it and considering that technology that there's always a human in or on the loop that is making the critical decisions uh, to either I want you to go and search this area the search could be done autonomously but the decision to do that could be done uh, by the human and remains by the human Uh, the other aspect is then how do we automate some of those you know dull dirty or dangerous tasks out of uh, out of our need to do them. Yeah. The conversation is many times angles into the fact that machines will start teaching machines and then there is the opportunity to take the humans out of it completely. Yeah, and I think the the human off-the-loop paradigm is certainly something that's possible um, into the future and could be you know built into a capability. I, I think Emily's point before about comfort of people or comfort of commanders to use that ability uh, would be would be very limited and certainly um, the conversations that we have with people they want to solve quite specific problems or make sure their soldiers are safe because they at the end of the day commanders are caring about the people not the machines that are out there uh, as much so if they can do anything to get those people out there's no need to to go the whole way and, and one thing we talk about within Rico is the minimum viable autonomy we don't need to have the gold standard of everything all the time that has the best performance or the best mobility for a particular area. It just needs to be good enough to do the task that's needed at that time. And context is really important.
Building on your point about context, I think the contextual application of these technologies is really important as well. So you can use um, learning techniques. We would use reinforcement learning, for example, to look for um, more efficient ways to prosecute a task. So how can a team of assets um, generate an outcome more efficiently? But we wouldn't use that reinforcement learning approach to build behaviors that were executing a safety critical function. So we would use um, we would use deterministic behaviors to do that. So you you might learn and train using that more unpredictable approach, but then hard code it in in a more structured way. So I think that would be a way to give confidence and surety. And, and I think the human centered component of that is really important. At the end of the day, the the AI and the autonomous systems are designed by people to help people. So we need to remember that there's context not only in their application, but the way that they're designed and who's designing them as well. And that's why it's really important for the partnership, I think, that we provide the application space uh, and Emily and the team at PhantomWorks uh, provide the know-how on how those systems are designed and trained and having a really close shared understanding of where we want to get to means that we're considering that across all avenues. You could also say it's to help people to protect people. Yeah, absolutely. And that's certainly one of the, the five offsets that we have in Army for the, the RAS strategy uh, is protecting the force. Um, and that's a key aspect of this. And that's one thing as well in the whole RICO space. This is well thought out with a you know, huge amount of um, thought and input into the strategy of what it is now, what it could be, how it's going to, again, help and protect. This is not just a bunch of you know, robotics experts all piling in and trying to create Terminator, is it? No, and I think in the past four or five years, we've had two strategies now. Uh, and certainly built from the other, and they've been well consulted across the whole uh, defence, strong input from DST um, uh, group, and as well as industry and academic partners. And, and the key part about that is we're not throwing everything out and just blindly looking around. It's a very considered and deliberate approach of what we're trying to explore for the purpose of gaining knowledge. What's the one thing that you want people to know about AI and its many applications in the Australian Army? It's here today. It's already helping people. And the more people understand it in their everyday life or see opportunity, uh, the better we'll be able to do things into the future. Yeah, and from a defence industry perspective? Well, I'd say for um, for defence personnel, it's not going to make you redundant. Don't worry, your job's not going to go away. Um, from an industry perspective, I think there's just endless opportunities for us to add value to, for the warfighter. So, Adam, what does AI in Army look like in five years? I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know if you've got one behind you there at all, Cam. Uh, I think... What we'll start to see is some of the technologies we've been experimenting with may come through into capability. Um, for instance, the project we have now um, could be, and the autonomy stack that, that's being developed by Emily's team, could be on, a, on, a, on an actual capability platform and used as part of everyday training um, for, for autonomous vehicles, which is really compelling. Um, I think we'll start to see some level of autonomous ground vehicles being employed for different roles, whether that be logistics or convoys uh, at some level. Um, but I'm not sure. And I think that's part of the fun that's on this journey is it's, we just don't know where it'll go uh, because it is quite exploratory. I was going to ask uh, then 10 years, but I feel as though I'm not going to get an answer there. <laughs> you know, there's a really interesting point that, you know, in the research world, you know, someone says, I think something's coming in five years. What they mean is I, I'm pretty sure that's possible and someone's probably needs to develop. If someone says 20, 30 years away, what they're really saying is I don't think it's possible. I'm kind of just putting a number on it at this point in time. Sure. Um, and then if someone says it's, oh, it's 100 years away, it's like, well, it's not my problem. It's beyond the life of this discussion. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> and so, Emily, where do you see it? I, and I'm going to give you the time frame. So five years and then into 10 years, what are your thoughts on the future of what it looks like? Well, so my expectation is that a number of the things to Adam's point that we've been experimenting with today will be adopted perhaps cautiously and somewhat skeptically in the five-year time frame. Uh, my aspiration 
is that in the 10 year time period, this will just become a normal part of everyday existence. Um, there'll be a whole pile of jobs, which people are thinking, goodness, where would I, you know, you'll reach for your glass of water from your little robot or something or another. Um, so there'll be, uh, it'll be much more um, integrated, um, you know, human machine teaming activities. And, and I hope then a real pull and a drive to see to see more yeah and so as we look towards the future then it must be also very exciting to talk about stem and younger people both male and female coming into science and learning particular skills in and around say artificial intelligence uh, absolutely cam it's so essential i think nationally that we have uh, quite a quite a broad approach to what particular skills it takes a wide range of people, all the way from uh, you know mathematicians and computer scientists to uh, graphic designers who are building the synthetic training pipeline. And there's a lot of skills that we don't have in Army today that we'll need for the future. And I think part of the work that General Fox and her team will lead is codifying uh, some of those skills of where we where we need to go into the future to remain a relevant and credible organisation. Yeah, and it's particularly exciting in defence industry, isn't it? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I'm um, really encouraged to see uh, my children are 10 and 13 and they use um, a, an inquiry-based approach to learning now and they teach them to be curious, they teach them to be researchers. My son tells me Google knows everything, Mum, which is absolutely <laughs> it. So this is not about you know learning facts, committing data to memory. It's about um, being able to research um, challenging, making sure you've got the data to hand to make decisions. So I'm really encouraged to see that we are um, we are we are educating and equipping um, the next generation to be the right kind of folks to be able, to be able to be the defence force of the future. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if we've got the same type of recruiting um, that we have today in 20 years, we've probably missed the opportunity that lays ahead to leverage a lot of this technology. Mm. So, sorry, sorry Emma, no, no, you go, Emily. That's a really exciting <laughs> point. Um, I think you and I have talked before, I think as time goes on, the boundary between defence, defence industry Absolutely. and even beyond defence industry, there'll be folks working things today. They've got no idea that there's a defence application. You know, some you talked about having skills in skills that would be required in the future that don't exist in defence today. Um, you know, we've talked a fair bit. Why do they need to be um, embedded within the defence community? So I think this becomes um, a more heavily integrated ecosystem as we move forward. Yeah, absolutely. And I think part of the partnership that we're exploring is giving awareness to those types of skills and opportunities where, you know, um, breaking down the barrier between industry and defence and saying, hey, we, we need what Emily's team has, they might not have to be in uniform, though. that can be part of industry or part of academia, you know, and still delivering really meaningful capability as well. Yeah, but as parents, though, it's very, very exciting. I've, my eldest uh, daughter has a science degree. She got had an interest in science from about year seven when a, a teacher really sort of pushed her into that direction and off she goes and you know now she's doing masters as well so as parents to look at the opportunities that stem is providing those opportunities are just incredible aren't they yep very much so yeah i was positively discouraged from pursuing engineering at school and to, the, the surefire way to get me motivated to do something is telling me I can't. <laughs> so that backfired big style. But, yeah. yeah, I can't imagine that happening now where, you know, somebody was told, oh, no, no, you shouldn't go down that path. Yeah. So that's great. We've definitely moved on. Yeah. If, you, if you're doing STEM today, the world's your oyster, I think. Yeah. Emily, Adam, that has been a fascinating discussion. There is so much opportunity and it can go in any direction. Thank you for your insights and thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thanks very much. Thanks for having us, Ken.